1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey everyone, it's Pacific. If you like the show and you like what we do, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help our show reach new listeners. And if you really, really like the show, consider becoming a member. For just $5 a month, you can get early and ad-free access to not only Out of Place, but other Midnight Disease shows like The Theater of Tomorrow, The Hotel, and, arriving next week, Margaret's Garden. All this and much, much more at MidnightDisease.net slash join. And, without further ado, this week's episode.
0: I was cornered by Miss Arundel this morning. She said we hadn't had the chance to have a good chat. She'd brought me a cup of tea and a Bakewell tart, so I sort of felt obliged. She perched on her desk and asked about where I went to university, whether I was from London originally, that sort of thing. I managed to avoid mentioning I'd dropped out of uni because I spent all my money and time on being drunk and high. I did manage to mention Mike, I said I'd been out with him the night before just for a Diet Coke or two to get out of the flat while Lola was doing some school thing or another. Miss Carruthers asked if he was an old university friend and I said, no, he's my boyfriend. She couldn't quite hide her disappointment, but at least now she knows. I think that's the first time I've ever called Mike that. This sounded strange even to me. I texted him when I got to the Institute's basement. "'I told him I was thinking about him, which was true. "'He said he was stripping an old table he found "'so he could repaint it and give my flat some personality. "'He was doing it with his shirt off "'and sent me a photo, which was nice of him. "'I suppose he really is my boyfriend. "'Bloody hell. "'As seems so often the case when I have some thinking to do, "'that was when I saw the brown envelope on my desk. "'It wasn't an actual package this time, "'which gave me some hope.' But when I opened it, the first thing I saw was the card from Mr Havisham. It was another artefact from the project. The artefact was a cardboard folder. It was stamped with a logo that looked like a globe with a small circle orbiting it, and the words United States of America beneath it. Another stamp on the cover actually read Top Secret, which struck me as being weirdly comical. Inside the folder were three photographs, apparently originals. They were aerial photographs of buildings in a rocky desert seen from directly above. I guess they were reconnaissance photos, maybe for intelligence or military purposes, hence the secrecy. They were annotated in black pen, with lines of codes and dates along the bottom edge, and a few structures labelled by hand. Going by the dates, they were all taken on the 19th of March 1968. That put them firmly in the Cold War, hence all the secrecy. My first thought was they were taken by an American spy plane and were of some Russian installation or other. One photo looked like a crash site where something had ploughed into the ground and gouged out a deep furrow with wreckage strewn everywhere. Another was of two rows of three long rectangular buildings with a couple of smaller ones nearby. The last was of a complicated set of structures with three large flat circular areas surrounded by masses of industrial steel like scaffolding and a lot of smaller buildings scattered around. The logo, I found, was of the National Reconnaissance Agency. This particular spook farm handles all the satellite surveillance for the US. When they use a spy satellite to photograph a terrorist training camp or read Vladimir Putin's morning paper, it's the NRO that presses the buttons. They were around since the 50s, back when the satellites in question had to drop canisters of developed film to be picked up later and developed. They were certainly the outfit that would be taking photos like this in the 1960s, although that meant they were probably taken by a satellite in orbit, uh, not an aircraft like I had first assumed. I found myself wondering how much all this cost. Millions? Billions in today's money? Perhaps that money could have been spent improving the American way of life instead of protecting it from the Red Menace. But then the US sort of won the Cold War eventually, so what do I know? Something about the landscape around the structures didn't seem right. I thought it might be a rocky desert like the Gobi, but I compared it to shots of similar places I found online and they didn't match up. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Then I saw what I thought was scattered rocks were actually depressions in the ground. Dozens of round depressions of all sizes. Some of them were as big as the buildings. And then there were the labelled locations. Whoever had written them on didn't have very legible handwriting. The long buildings were Dormitories 1-6. to A smaller building was the Commissary and another was labelled Storage. Near the dormitories was a smaller paved area labelled the Valentina Tereshkova Memorial. The crash site was labelled with Lunokhod Gamma and a question mark. The name Valentina Tereshkova rang a bell. So did the circular depressions all over the ground. I thought of space and the grainy black and white photographs of men in bulky white suits bouncing across an equally desolate surface. I realised then that I was looking at the moon. A Soviet base on the moon. Photographed by an American spy satellite in 1968, a year before, in our reality, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would land on the lunar surface in the name of America. Lunacod was the name of a Soviet lunar rover program that started, in our world at least, in 1968. The first one blew up on the launch pad, and the next two trundled about on the moon for a bit before the batteries ran out. But this photograph seemed to show where one had crashed into the lunar surface, and it looked like it spread a lot more debris than could be accounted for by any of the Lunacod lunar vehicles or landers used to drop them on the moon. Then I realised where I knew the name Valentina Tereshkova from. She was the first woman in space. She went up in 1963. The thing is, there shouldn't be a memorial to her on the moon or anywhere else in 1968, because when I checked, she's still alive... There's a conspiracy theory that the Soviets tried to send people into space before Yuri Gagarin in 1961, but that the missions failed and the cosmonauts died. It's one of the few conspiracy theories that might actually be true because it's exactly the kind of thing the Soviets would have done. It probably didn't happen because no evidence has ever been found in all the declassified Russian information. But what would have happened if one of the landmark manned space missions hadn't happened? What if it had failed? Gagarin and Tereshkova were given the award of Hero of the Soviet Union. There are stamps with their faces on them. The cult of the cosmonaut, as superhuman conqueror of space, was one of the driving forces behind the whole space programme. But if Tereshkova died, and the world found out about it, that cult might fall apart it might have to be replaced by something else. Stalin is supposed to have said, quantity has a quality all its own. He probably didn't say it, but that doesn't mean it wasn't true, especially for the Soviet Union. It had defeated the Axis powers in World War II, partly by having depthless numbers of Russian soldiers to be thrown at the enemy or put to work in the war effort. What if that same attitude had been applied to the space programme? Not a few fantastically expensive space missions with the greatest specimens of Soviet humanity, but batteries of rockets thrown at the moon to see which ones would get there and who would survive. That kind of space programme would certainly explain why the layout of the buildings on the photographs so closely resembled a gulag. I found a magnifying glass in the archivist's tools and looked more closely at the annotations I couldn't quite make out. The handwriting was more legible, blown up. It was presumably an NRO analyst who'd labelled a patch of disturbed ground as the cemetery and noted one of the small buildings and the hoses leading to the dormitories as Oxygen Tank Shed? The large circular areas were Science Centre, Living Quarters and Party HQ, with another note saying, Construction Abandoned. The space programme was one of elite engineering and design, with every variable shaved down to make success as close to 100% as possible. But that's only one way to achieve something. Perhaps another way would be to accept a success rate of 70%. 50%, 20%, and send up many times the number of missions and personnel. If they died, they were sacrifices to the cause of Soviet progress, as the millions of Red Army troops who died in the great patriotic war against the Nazis were sacrifices to survival and victory. And if those brave souls who volunteered, or were volunteered, or were skimmed off from prison camps in Siberia, found a place of death and hopelessness after their terrifying rocket trip, who were they going to tell? There would be nothing else for them to do except build their camp and set up a memorial to the woman whose death had ended the heroic age of space exploration. If the analysts' notes were accurate, the labour camp on the moon was supposed to build a much nicer set of accommodation nearby, presumably for people the Soviet Union felt were a more acceptable face of Russia's expansion into space. These later settlers were to live in a communist paradise on a new world. By the looks of it, the camp had failed. That's not a particular surprise. The Soviets had form for that sort of failed project. In 1933, during a massive purge of people Stalin didn't want cluttering up his perfect communist cities of Moscow and Leningrad, 6,000 people were sent to a remote island in Siberia called Nazino. They were expected to build their own camp and establish farms. They were dumped there with 20 tonnes of flour and a bunch of guards who were supposed to execute anyone who fled. Most of them died of starvation or disease or violence, or just vanished into the Siberian wilderness. It was one of the worst examples among countless others. A similar disaster on the moon is the likely result of trying to establish a labour colony there. It might not even have stopped the efforts to colonise it. If there's one thing the history of the Soviet Union tells us, it's that it doesn't matter how many people die... As long as there's a grand victory for the party to parade in front of the world. I imagined that high gulag of disposable cosmonauts catapulted into space. I will let my mind run away with things like that. For all I know, the NRO analyst was completely wrong and he was looking at the result of some Soviet propaganda image. It might have been a complete fake fed to the NRO to make the Americans think the moon was already claimed and the space race was over. I hope it was. I doubt it, though. I don't think the project would send it to me if it was that simple. Did the people of the USSR know about the high gulag? Did prisoners and deportees fear being put into a rocket instead of being left in a camp to rot? Or was it touted as a heroic mission to build a future on a new world, only for the fresh-faced volunteers to realise with horror they were disposable labour 239,000 miles away from home? Or to die in the effort to even get there, like whoever had been on board Lunacod Gamma? It's the questions that aren't answered that trouble me the most. I always fill them in with whatever the worst possible answer is. Maybe that's what humans naturally do, or maybe that's just me. I somehow feel Mike would tell me to look on the brighter side and think of all the possible explanations that didn't involve huge numbers of people dying among the stars. And he's right, of course. I have no idea that any of this is even real. But the high gulag is one of those things that won't let go of me. It's like a needle stuck in the back of my brain. Maybe that's why the project chose me to send them to. Because they know I won't dismiss artefacts like this or ignore what they mean. If so, they're bastards. There's a place in the Institute's basement for old paper records from archaeological digs and surveys. The photographs went in there, together with their top-secret folder... It'll be a relief to get back to the flat and Mike and Lola so I can pretend the things I see in the project artefacts don't exist. They don't exist, of course, not in our reality but somewhere else they do and that's just another of the questions that does my head in. I'll watch TV with Mike maybe with Lola sat between us gradually parceling out information about her day at school it almost seems normal. The kind of life regular, productive people can eventually turn into happiness. It's something to hold on to, I hope. I think I'll come to need that more and more, especially on nights when the moon is full.
1: Out of Place was created by Ben Counter. Sound design was done by Pacific S. Ogdaya. If you like this show, consider checking out other Midnight Disease productions, like The Theater of Tomorrow, The Hotel, Lake Clarity, SCP Archives, and Margaret's Garden.